We're going to continue our study in Revelation this morning, sort of. We've left off at Revelation 11, verse 14, which said that the third woe, which coincides with the seventh trumpet, is coming quickly. Here's what the text says next in Revelation 11. I would encourage you to just sort of remember this as we go through the rest of the message. Think about how other things we look at are going to relate to what we're about to read. So Revelation 11, starting at verse 15 through verse 19, says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come. Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and have reigned, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now, even though we've read this text this morning, I want to be clear, it is not my intention to exposit those verses this morning the way that we usually do. But make note of some of the things that it contains. In Revelation eleven fifteen through 19, you hear there is the sound of a final, a last trumpet. There is a declaration from heaven saying the kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and he's going to reign forever and ever. The nations are angry because the wrath of God has come. And it's a time when both the living and the dead are going to be judged. Now that text as a whole is not something we're going to deal with this morning the way that we usually do. The plan is that we'll do that next time. Instead, this morning we're going to have a topical message, maybe even more of a lesson, lesson. I I pointed out to you several weeks ago back in Revelation 3 verse 10 and Revelation 4 verse 1. There are a couple of passages where people who hold the position that the rapture takes place prior to the tribulation look there and say that it proves it. And that's of course not the opinion that I hold. And I told you then that we would ultimately come to a point where that's a topic we're just going to have to deal with. And I think we're there. In discussions I've had over the years, I've, I've told friends that I have never in my entire ministry preached a, just a whole sermon on the post-tribulation rapture. And I guess after today, I won't be able to say that anymore, although I may be able to say I still haven't preached a good one. I'm going to ask for your indulgence for a moment while I make a disclaimer, since I know 
this sermon is going to go online and it is going to get shared with some folks, I want to be clear about something. The timing of the rapture is a complicated issue. There is no view on this issue that is without its difficulties and therefore it should not be a test of fellowship for anyone. As I've said before, as long as you believe and uphold the clear teaching that the Lord Jesus is coming back, we can disagree about some of the details of that without it being offensive to me. It is unfortunate that the question of the rapture's timing has in the minds of many overshadowed what is clearly the main emphasis, the the most compelling truth of the end times, which is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus when he returns to reign as king of kings. But it is a complicated issue. It requires serious study. Every text of scripture is inspired and true, but not any single text of scripture stands entirely on its own. To reach an informed conclusion on this question, a student of the word needs to study. They need to study the book of Daniel. They need to study Revelation. They need to study Jesus' words in, in Luke 21 and Mark 13 and Matthew 24, as well as as many parables of the last day. You need to study what the Apostle John has to say about the Antichrist in his letters, both of the letters of Peter and his understanding of the end times, and of course, Paul's teaching throughout several of his letters just to start. It is not a simple issue and no one sermon is going to resolve or even address all the questions. That's not the goal today. So if someone wants to listen to this message online and dismiss it as not being comprehensive enough, feel free to send me an email. Let's let's talk. The goal of this message and frankly the goal of every message from this pulpit needs to be to edify the Lord's church right here this morning. So, thanks. That's a disclaimer for them. Now now a disclaimer for you. Because many folks are unwilling to dig into the word and instead they're willing to simply just believe what they've been taught. I appeal to you not to be that way. If you do not have in your own mind, through your own study and understanding of what the Bible teaches on this issue, you are going to be adrift in some sad and confusing terms, and you're probably not even going to realize that you're confused in the process. For example, I cannot tell you how many times that people, even many preachers, have been told that I am post-trib, and immediately they think that that means I'm post-mill, which is an entirely different uh, question. If someone is pre-millennial, right, we need to understand these terms. If someone's pre-millennial, that means they simply believe that Jesus is going to return at some point in the future and set up his earthly kingdom where he rules and reigns for a thousand years. That is, Jesus will return pre or before that millennial kingdom. There are post-mill people out there, and bless their hearts, they're an odd bunch to me. And there's even a-mill people who don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign at all. But 
when the question of being pre-trib or post-trib is dramatically different from being pre-mill or post-mill. In fact, it's not the same issue at all. I don't know of a single person who holds to a pre-tribulation view of the rapture, or I'm sorry, a post-tribulation view of the rapture, who is not pre-millennial in their view of Christ's kingdom. I know this is, gets confusing, but being pre-trib essentially means that you believe the rapture will occur before or at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. And being post-trib means that you believe the rapture will take place at the end of that seven-year tribulation period. So I want to start out this morning just by giving you a, a brief overview of the history of this question. And I want to be careful how I talk about this because in personal conversations in the past, I'll be honest, I've overstated it and I don't want to overstate things anymore. I have said that you cannot find anybody in history before the year 1800 who held to a pre-trib rapture. And you will be challenged to find them, but the reality is there probably were people who throughout history have held just about every view of the end times. But we can speak in generalities and say that it was very rare. For the first 300 years of Christian history, after the scriptures were complete, the old writers, sometimes called the church fathers, were fairly uniform in their expectation of about the end times. They held what would basically be called a premillennial view with a post-tribulation rapture. That is, men like Justin Martyr or Irenaeus, if you've heard those names, back in the first few hundred years of Christian history, they taught that sort of in this order is how things would happen. There would be a man known as the Antichrist who will arise to power at the beginning of a seven-year tribulation period. In the middle of that tribulation period, that Antichrist is going to start insisting on people worshiping him. The last part of that tribulation period, the last three and a half years, that Antichrist will actively and openly persecute the people of God. And then at the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus will return in glory, collecting his saints, defeating the Antichrist, and setting up his own kingdom on earth. That was the historic teaching of Christian writers in the first several hundred years of Christian history. After a few hundred years, the view started to, to change. It would seem the rise and development of Roman Catholicism had something to do with that since they sort of coincided with each other. But this historic form of premillennialism became almost like the silent minority for many centuries. In fact, it wasn't until about 1800, early in the 1800s, that it started to resurface in popularity. But when it resurfaced, it had a twist to it. There was a new form of premillennialism, which argued that the church, and I'm putting the church in bunny foo-foo air quotes, right? We got to talk about this later. That it said the church would be raptured before the tribulation period happens. I hope you follow that. So in other words, historic premillennialism 
argues that the Antichrist rises, the tribulation happens, then the Lord returns and the rapture occurs at the same time and he sets up his earthly kingdom. The new form of premillennialism argues that the rapture happens first, that it sort of kicks everything off. And then you have this seven-year tribulation period where the saints are already gone and then Christ returns in glory at the end of it and sets up his kingdom. That secret rapture or that any moment rapture was made popular in a study Bible by a guy named C.I. Schofield, if you've ever heard of a Schofield study Bible. It became widely accepted in even popular novels and movies. The Left Behind series are all about this secret rapture that happens before the tribulation. So maybe the simplest starting point is to ask is the, the rapture of the saints, where the saints are taken up into glory, is that the same event or is it a different event from when the Lord himself returns to set up his earthly kingdom? And to answer that, I'd like you to go to 1 Thessalonians. The church at Thessalonica had some worries about those who had died like if someone dies before the Lord returns, or are they going to miss out? And so this led Paul to write some explanation about end time events for them. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll start at verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, in other words, those who have died, that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep or who have died in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, and that word there means proceed, to go before, shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with those words. So those who have died before the return of the Lord, in verse 14, it says that God will bring them with Jesus when he comes. Now, how is that going to happen? Verse 15 says those believers who are living when the Lord returns will not prevent. In 1611, that meant proceed. They're not going to go before. They're not going to go before those who are dead. Instead, the Lord, in verse 16, descends from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then in verse 17, the living who remain will be caught up. That's the rapture. They'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul does not differentiate between the events of the rapture and the return of the Lord Jesus in glory. In fact, it's, it's interesting. That word meet, when you look at verse 17, he says, we'll meet the Lord in the air. The word meet there 
uh, is a, a word that essentially describes going out to meet a dignitary and then returning with him from where you went out to meet him. So the other two times this word gets used in scripture, it's used exactly that way. In Acts 18, uh, 28 verse 15, as Paul is getting close to Rome, some saints at Rome come out to meet him and then they join with him and return into Rome. Um, in Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins, which, by the way, is a parable about the second coming of the Lord. And he uses that same word for those virgins who come out to meet the groom and then turn around and come with him into the wedding ceremony. Essentially, the Apostle Paul visualizes the rapture of the saints being simultaneous with the return of Jesus in glory. It's one event in which Jesus returns to the earth and saints, both alive and dead, are brought up with him to turn and, and return to him with, with him to earth. Now, this obviously didn't answer all the questions that the people in Thessalonica had about the end times. Glance over to chapter 5 for a minute, and Paul says in verse 1, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And that has been used to argue for this sort of sudden surprise pre-tribulation rapture, right? That's to say that the Lord's coming is like a, a thief in the night. It's a surprise. You're not going to see it coming. But is that what Paul's saying in this chapter? He's telling them in verse one, I don't need to write to you about the times and seasons because of what you already know. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It'll be a surprising event, but who is it going to be surprising to? Well, Keep reading in verse 3. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as one who travails upon, uh, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. Right? Pay attention to the they's and the you's that Paul's talking there. The, the world is going to be surprised by the rapture and the return of the Lord, but the saints, in Paul's view, are not going to be surprised by this. It's not going to overtake them as a thief. It's not going to be a, a sudden, unexpected thing. They're going to see the unfolding events of Scripture leading up to that day, and they're going to know that it's coming. Now, that doesn't make much sense if the rapture is sort of what starts and kicks everything off as a sudden surprise, but it makes perfect sense if we know the things that are going to happen during the tribulation period so that the world itself is clueless and shocked at the end, but the saints see it coming. Paul writes even more about this in his second letter to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 7, he, he describes the return of the Lord Jesus with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that don't know God and who haven't obeyed the gospel. They're going to be punished with everlasting destruction. That's some can't-miss 
imagery of Jesus' return here, there, right? It's, it, it matches the idea that every eye will see him. This, there's going to be this glorious return of Jesus that won't be missed. And Paul's telling them that because apparently some in the church had been told that it had already happened. I think someone wrote a letter saying it was from Paul, misleading them about the end time events, and Paul's correcting it. So go on to read what Paul says to him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our, by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as if it was from us, as that the day of the Lord is at hand, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that's called God or that's worshipped so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God." This gathering together of the saints of the Lord, the day of Christ, had not already come. And Paul says, in fact, it could not come until first there was a falling away and the Antichrist, the man of sin in verse 3 there, is revealed. Now that's sort of an interesting way to explain to the Thessalonians how they would know that they had not missed the rapture. The reality is if Paul taught and believed a pre-tribulation rapture, he could have simply looked at them and said, well, of course you didn't miss it. You're still here, right? I mean, there's, there's believers in the world. And so you know the rapture hasn't taken place. But what he tells them is you know you haven't missed it because the Antichrist has not yet come. And that has to happen first. Nowhere in the writing of the Apostle Paul do I see a hint that the rapture of the saints and the return of the Lord Jesus in glory are two separate, distinct events? Or as some would say, it's one event separated by seven years. But that, that makes them two different events. Instead, what we find is he consistently uses language to sort of blend the, them into a single expectation. He, he writes to Titus and Titus verses 12 and 13 to tell him live righteously in this present world in the expectation of the future looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ he even tells the church at Corinth when to expect it to happen look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 now, Paul does not say when it's going to happen, like he's setting a date, but he, he describes the moment that it's going to happen. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, right? Not every believer is going to die before this. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
Not, not only does the Apostle Paul teach that the rapture of the saints and the return of the Lord are simultaneous, right? two aspects of the very same event, but he also says that this is going to happen at the last trumpet. And I know my pre-tribulation friends engage in some linguistic gymnastics here to try to explain why last trumpet doesn't mean last trumpet, but I'm just simple-minded enough to think that if he knows what a trumpet is and he knows what last means when he describes it happening at the last trumpet, and we go to Revelation and we read about the last trumpet and we see a description of the same things he's talking about here, that probably we just need to believe what he said and not try to explain it away. The pre-tribulation position does something very similar with the Olivet Discourse of Jesus in Matthew 24. If you would turn to Matthew 24 for a moment. It's very unlike me to have you going all over from passage to passage, I know. But Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus has told his disciples the temple is going to be destroyed and they ask him, essentially in verse 3, when will that happen? What will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the world? And they assume incorrectly that all of that that they're asking about is the same event. And so Jesus begins to explain this to them. And when he gets down to talking about the end times, listen to what he says in Matthew 24, starting at verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Clearly, at least I think it's clear, Jesus is describing the great tribulation that's coming, some of the very events that we've seen John talking about in Revelation. It's going to be unlike anything that's ever happened, and he says, in fact, anything that ever will happen. And the only thing that will bring it to the end is when the Lord stops it, quote, for the elect's sake. Now, the pre-trib argument is always going to be that Matthew 24, well, that's just for the Jewish people. It's not talking about Gentile saints. It's not talking about the church. And there is some sense in which that's who it is for because we've gone through Revelation. We've seen the Lord has a plan for the Jewish people. We've not denied that. And yet in Matthew 24, he is not addressing the Jewish nation in the temple. Verse 3 says he's speaking to his own disciples, believers, privately. When he speaks of the elect, I certainly want to be included there. It's strange to me when Sovereign Grace Baptists want to not include themselves in the word elect especially when the description of his people in this chapter includes, at the end of verse 9, those hated of all nations for my name's sake, right? Those are believers. Those are people who have put their trust in him, not just Jews by birth. So why would they argue that this is just for Jewish people? Well, the reason they would do that is because of what Jesus goes on to say. Look down at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
The sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the nations shall be shaken, and then shall be signs, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of, of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus taught that the gathering, the the rapture of his elect will happen after the tribulation of those days at a time when there is a great trumpet sounding and the nations are going to mourn. They see the coming of the Lord in power and great glory. that, That is all one event, that is the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15. It's the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus. We won't miss it because we'll see it coming. It's going to surprise the world. It's going to overtake them like a thief, but not us. We're not blinded to the truth. Believers will see the events of the tribulation unfold and won't be surprised by it. Again, this is not a comprehensive list of everything the Bible teaches about the timing of the rapture, but it turns out those historic premillennialists, those earliest writers in the first centuries of Christianity, knew what they were talking about. The Antichrist will arise, the tribulation will unfold, the elect of God will be raptured to meet him in the air as he comes to set up his earthly kingdom and claim victory over this world. Now, I want to take a bit of time, hopefully not too much, to answer a few common questions and then explain why this even matters. The questions first, at least some of the most common questions about the post-tribulation view of the rapture. The first one is, what about the fact that we don't see the word church in Revelation during John's description of the tribulation period, right? Doesn't it indicate that the church is not there, that the church has been raptured? Well, it's true that the word church doesn't appear in Revelation after chapter 3, verse 22. As John's writing about future events, it doesn't show up all through the tribulation period until the Lord's returned. It's not there again. The word church doesn't show up again until Revelation twenty-two, sixteen, when we are with him in glory. There's no denying what the text says. But the question is actually trying to make an argument based on what the text doesn't say. It's an argument from silence. I would encourage, especially, you know, Sovereign Grace Landmark Baptists to think that argument through before they continue to use it. We are people who recognize what the word church means. It means a local, visible assembly. It is not a universal, invisible collection of all believers, everyone who's saved. It designates a local assembly. It is highly unusual to hear men who know that truth and love that truth to suddenly forget it when they start to read Revelation. John delivered the Lord's word to the churches in chapter 2 and 3 in Revelation. Those seven churches in Asia Minor, local 
visible assemblies. And then we don't see the word again until you have a local visible assembly of all believers with Christ at the end. But in between there, as John's describing this like worldwide events of everything that's going on in the tribulation period, there is no universal, invisible, worldwide church that I would even expect him to talk about in Revelation. That's just not what the word means. It doesn't mean that all the believers have been raptured and that's why the word's not there. It just means John's not talking to a local assembly. That's why the word's not there. So this question of why we don't see the word church is really a question we should stop asking. It's an argument from silence and it's an argument based on a theologically flawed definition of the word. Another question that gets asked is, well, aren't aren't the saints assured to be spared from God's wrath? And amen, yes, we are. That's actually found in one of those passages in 1 Thessalonians earlier. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is inherent in the work of Jesus Christ that he has suffered all the wrath of God on behalf of the elect. He bore our sins. He endured God's wrath on the cross. So we are not appointed to wrath. And so the point of that question is, why would believers be here during the tribulation period when the wrath of God is being poured out on earth? I think think the simple answer is because the tribulation period is not the wrath of God in that sense. At least, I would argue until we get to Revelation when the seven vials or bowls of wrath get poured out at the last trumpet, that's the wrath of God that we are saved from. God is sovereign. He is completely in control. All the horrific events of the tribulation are his divine plan for this wicked world. But you also have to remember that the Bible indicates the Lord's saints will endure many troubling times. Acts 14, says, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. 1 Peter 4, 17 says, judgment must begin with the house of God. Paul even writes to the church at Rome to assure them if they're enduring tribulation, that's not going to indicate they've been removed from the love of Christ. What can remove us from love of Christ? Look at the list, not tribulation. And so following this argument logically, if the view is the rapture has to take place before the tribulation because the tribulation period is the wrath of God, then what do we do with all the folks who become believers in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period? We see in Revelation that they're there. I don't know of anyone who denies that there are people who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. If they are saved by faith in Christ as God's pouring out his wrath on the world, why aren't they just immediately raptured and taken out? Right? Why is their faith in Christ somehow they get a different deal than than we would get. Instead, what makes the most sense biblically is that the wrath of God, which Paul tells the Thessalonians that we're not appointed to, is the same wrath that he's talking to them about 
in the context of his letters. Remember in his letter, he described the coming of Jesus with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that don't know God and who haven't obeyed the gospel. That wrath comes at the time Jesus returns, the same time the saints are raptured to meet him in the air. We are not appointed to that wrath. Another question that comes up is what about the imminent return? If you're, if you're post-trib, doesn't that mean that you don't believe in the imminent return of Jesus? Well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. There are many passages of Scripture which admonish us to live righteously, and they do not lose any of their intensity by accepting a post-tribulation position on the rapture. For example, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we've referred to already. Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace teaches us to live righteously in the expectation of the Lord's return. The Lord taught the same truth in the uh, parable about the servant who would either be diligent until his master returns or he'll be caught um, being drunken and ashamed. This is a clear teaching of scripture. We're to watch because we expect the Lord to return. But the sense of imminence with his return, as I understand it biblically, has to do with the idea that that time is always drawing closer. For example, Hebrews 10.25 tells us to maintain biblical fellowship and worship, right? It's that passage that says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But it adds, even as we see the day approaching, right? It is getting closer, Romans 13, 11, the Apostle Paul says to be awake or attentive because the time of our ultimate deliverance is closer now than at the moment that we were first saved. None of the teaching about the eminence of Christ's return suggests that it is just going to happen any moment. What it suggests is it is always drawing closer and so we should live righteously. This makes sense when you think about the apostles who wrote the New Testament. They already knew when they wrote some of those passages that there were other things that had to take place before the Lord was going to return. Peter knew that he was going to have to reach an old age and die because Jesus had told him that. Paul knew that he was going to have to make it to Rome and declare the gospel. All the apostles had heard Christ tell them that the gospel was going to go out to the whole world. I also knew Jesus said the temple would be destroyed and wrote about that imminent return before that had even taken place. Just maybe this is a, a, a bad example, but I, I know someone who counts down their, uh, the things that they're waiting for in life by saying things like, well, I only have two more haircuts until vacation. Similarly, Watching and being excited for the 
the soon approaching return of the Lord Jesus does not discount that some other events have to transpire first. It's simply a command that our focus is on that ever approaching return of Jesus in glory. We should live righteously with that in mind because there's nothing more important than that that we're looking forward to. That's what the imminent return of Jesus is about. And that brings me maybe to the last thing I'm going to say. I know I'm running long. Why does this even matter? The whole reason for dealing with this is not so that we can try to be right in some theological debate. If it's okay with... Would it be okay with you if I'm wrong? It'd be okay with me. The greatest reason it matters, as I see it, are, are two specific areas. First off, to teach believers that they have the absolute assurance that they won't endure the tribulation period. It is setting up an entire generation of believers for some faith-shaking experience when it turns out that pre-trib people are wrong. At the very least, when this question comes up, it would be wise to tell people we ought to have some humility because there are several views of the timing of the rapture and you need to to study them and look into it. And frankly, if someone hears this message and remains unconvinced about the post-trib rapture, that's fine. I don't anticipate changing anybody's mind, but maybe you'll at least recognize that the pre-trib rapture is far from being as certain as many men suggest that it is. And if there is a danger, the danger is on the pre-tribulation rapture side. I don't anticipate anybody who believes that the rapture is going to happen at the end of the tribulation will complain if they're wrong. If tomorrow I am called up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air, I'm not going to ask him for a rain check. (laughs) But I am genuinely worried that there are assemblies full of people whose faith will be shaken when it turns out that, you know, pastor pre-trib good guy has been wrong and has not taught them what scripture says. Second, and more importantly, for us here this morning, history is filled with stories of those who were certain that the rapture was just about to take place. It would occur any moment, and instead of living diligently and obediently, they dropped everything and just sort of stared upwards. In fact, I'm convinced when the Apostle Paul taught the church at Thessalonica that some things have to happen first before that day of the Lord comes, that part of that was because some of the assembly thought they might have missed it, but also it seems evident to me that there were some of the assembly at Thessalonica who had sort of taken their hand off the plow. They had stopped living a diligent Christian life. They'd started skating, sort of assuming that the rapture was going to happen at any moment. Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians, right? This is the same context, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 through 13. Paul writes, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, not working at all, but are busybodies. 
Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But you, brothers, do not be weary in well-doing. Paul was disappointed to hear that there were some in the church who were not working at all. Instead of being busy, they were being busy bodies, he said. Quite literally living like tomorrow would not come. I think in the context of the letter, because some of them thought it really wasn't going to come. Like the, the end is any moment now. It's not a coincidence that the same letter which teaches believers not to expect the rapture to just happen at any moment, also is a letter that teaches believers in the words of 2 Thessalonians 3.13, brothers, do not be weary in well-doing. The Lord's return and our rapture to meet him in the air is a confident expectation of believers. And we are to keep our nose to the grindstone up until that final trumpet when we are called up to meet him in the air and then return with him as he comes to earth to set up his kingdom, to claim victory over all the kingdoms as his own, to reign in the words of Revelation 11 forever and ever. 